Uh, we're going to continue, for those of you in the room, uh, with our series, our fifth week in the series, Credo, where, as you've been hearing, we've been focusing on some fundamental things that we believe as Christians and that we teach as a church as well. And this weekend, we're going to wrap that up by focusing especially on the role that the Bible plays in all of that and to, to get our minds kind of going along that vein, since the Bible's a, a little different book compared with Harry Potter, or one of my favorites, by the way, is The Princess Bride. Some of you have seen the movie. The book is actually even better, right? Which is often the case, but it's, it's hilarious. So uh, take my recommendation, go get The Princess Bride. But um, the Bible's a little bit different, so I'm going to start out with a little bit of Bible trivia for those of you who are in the rooms, right? And now don't worry, nobody at home knows if you're going to have the wrong answer. Nobody in here really cares. It's just a fun way to get started, okay? So, so here's the first question. Uh, hopefully some of you know the answer. How many books are in the Bible? 66. That's awesome, right? Now, bonus, how many of them are in the Old Testament, or it's like Pastor Randy likes to call it the First Testament? 39, which means how many in the New Testament? 27. Either some of you are really good at math or uh, you know that. That's awesome, right? So uh, about two-thirds of what we call our Bible is the Old Testament, about one-third the New Testament. About how many people, humans, were involved in writing the Bible? Right? So think of all the different people who wrote different books of the Bible. About how many do you think? Just a ballpark number here works. 42. <laughs> About 40. Depending on how you uh, attribute authorship to some of the Old Testament books and maybe like the book of Hebrews, somewhere around 40, 41, 42. So Steve, good. Uh, you can have a pumpkin. All right. Um, how many years of time did it take from the first one to be written to the last one? So think like Genesis, maybe all the way to Revelation. What would you say? Ballpark, total years. 12 to 1500, maybe, give or take. Yep. So depending on when you date the book uh, or date the Exodus of Egypt and the age of Moses. That's what's going to impact uh, the starting date. And we know that uh, around 100 A.D. is when, um, uh, when Revelation, a little bit before, maybe 90 to 100 A.D. Okay? So about 1,500 years, about 40 different authors, 66 different books that make up what we know of as our Bible. Okay? Now we're going to just get into some fun little facts and figures. Uh, you know, later on, uh, the Bible was divided into chapters and verses, right? Okay, chapters and verses. Uh, about how many chapters do you think there are total in the Bible? Ballpark. You know, Matthew has 28 chapters. A few of them are just one. 727. Steve, your luck is running out. It's about 1,189 chapters, right? Okay, so a little over 1,000 chapters. Uh, 31,103 verses, over 800,000 words, right, uh, are what we call our Bible. Now, here's the real extra credit bonus point. What would you say is the exact middle, if you're to divide the Bible in half, exact middle? Psalms, right? You're right. So if you just fold your book open, the Bible, it's pretty much always going to fold to Psalms in the middle. And the exact middle of the Psalms this is just a little random trivia, is Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2, which read, Praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being, praise His holy name. All right, that's verse 1. And then verse 2, Praise the Lord my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Okay? 
so uh, that's the exact center of Scripture. But what we're going to do today is we're going to explore how it is that we got the Bible and why it is that we believe that it is fundamental to our faith and, and kind of capturing that in this simple statement. We believe that the Bible is very reliable and that you should build your life upon it. Okay? And we say that uh, for a few reasons. First of all, uh, because this has been the way of Jesus from the very first disciples. All right, so let's take a look at a, a few of the things they said. This is recorded in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Right? So uh, maybe you've heard that passage before. The Word of God is living and active. That means it has power. It has an effect on us. And, and, it, and it compares it to a sword. And this makes you feel a little uncomfortable, maybe just cutting down deep. And we're going to talk a little bit later about how the, the Word of God sometimes challenges and confronts us in our sinfulness and our humanness. But then it also brings life and hope and peace as well. Okay? Uh, here's, here's another uh, uh, testimony. This is from the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Maybe you're familiar with the word, the inspiration of the Bible. That's what we're talking about here, where, where God's Spirit was present and active in its writing and in its transmission uh, down to us. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? so that we may be complete, equipped for every good work, right? So the Bible uh, is not just an abstract book of history, but it has a very specific purpose to help prepare us to become more like Jesus, to put into practice his words and his ways, to be equipped for everything God has called us to do. And the scripture, the Bible, is fundamental to that. Here's another interesting thing Paul says about the Scriptures. That's a, you notice here it's in capital. That's a, the way the ESV renders it. it, it it's, it's a technical term to refer to the authoritative writings that the, that the church builds its life upon. It says this, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then it quotes another one, The laborer deserves his wages. Now you may be wondering, um, why are you quoting these random passages? And, and here's why. It's interesting. Paul, writing to young Timothy, maybe a few decades into his ministry, quotes both what we call the Old Testament and then also what we would call part of the New Testament. So, so the first one, you shall not muzzle an ox, that's from Deuteronomy 25. And the second one, uh, the laborer deserves his wages, is not an Old Testament quotation. It's actually the words of Jesus. That's why I put them in red. And it's recorded for us in Luke 10 and also in Matthew chapter 10. So what this tells us is that already by the time of the Apostle Paul and his disciple uh, Timothy, the, the, the Gospels at the very least, and probably also some of Paul's letters were being transmitted, circulated, and treated as if they were on par and equal to the Bible of the Old Testament church, uh, the law and the prophets and the writings as Jesus referred to them, the Old Testament in our terms. One more stop here before we move on. Second Peter chapter 3. So it's not just Paul writing this. It's, it's all of the early Christians. Peter here says this, and count, his patience, uh, as, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. 
just as our beloved brother Paul, referring to St. Paul, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters. So again, there seems to be clear evidence that the early church was copying and transmitting the letters of Paul, the four Gospels, and then also the letters of Peter and John and some of the other apostles. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And then he adds this, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And if you've done any study of Paul's letters, there's 13 of them at least recorded for us in Scripture. Um, Sometimes they're challenging. Um, Which the ignorant and the unstable twist their own destruction, as they do, and here's the part I want you to note, as they do the other Scriptures. So Peter is equating the letters of Paul with the Old Testament books that, that were already established by the time that Jesus was born and raised in Nazareth. So the point of this would be to say the earliest followers of Jesus treat what we call our Bible as the foundation of their faith, including both what we call the Old and what we call the New Testaments. Now, let's take a closer look at a few other ways that we can say that what we believe and build our lives on is reliable and, and worth uh, paying attention to, how we can trust the Bible. Uh, We're going to look at it in four different ways, starting with this first one, how the manuscript evidence proves its accuracy. Now, I'll just say this. um, A lot of this stuff can get super heady, and we can go down deep for a good long while. We're not going to spend too much time on any of these for us. I'm just going to give you kind of an entry level, then you can follow up on your own if you want. You can Google it and find some great resources, or you can ask me or Pastor Randy, and we'll share some with you. But we'll start with the manuscript evidence. I put together a a little chart here for you of some contemporary works of significance, and and I want to show you in particular the manuscript evidence we have for our New Testaments. So some of you know the name Plato, right? Okay, not Plato, what you play with as kids, or eat, like, did anyone eat Play-Doh? As a, yeah, some of you did. Okay, uh, not supposed to, but you always end up doing that. Plato with a T, um, important dude, um, Greek philosopher, uh, around the time 400 B.C. Uh, we have about seven copies in antiquity of some of Plato's works uh, that date from about 1,300 years later, the earliest copies. Aristotle, also important Greek philosopher. We have about 49 of his And again, notice the span between what was originally written and the earliest copy, again, a a little over a thousand years. How about Sophocles? Anyone know Sophocles? Okay, I don't, someone does. There we go. One friend in the back, right? Uh, Most of us don't know Sophocles, but look, we've got a bunch of his, 193 of his works. Another Greek philosopher. And Homer, you may know Homer. He wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, some of the great Greek uh, myths and legends and stories uh, he was able to record for us. Um, And there are 643 copies of his. So if you take just Homer and the Iliad, the copies we have, uh, scholars can recreate what they have uh, uh, 95% accuracy, the original manuscript that Homer would have written. Long since lost, but we can recreate those from the 640-some copies we do have. Now, the last one on the list there you'll notice is our New Testament, written approximately 50 to 100 A.D., somewhere around in there, within a few decades of the life and the times of Jesus. In our earliest copies of it are some papyrus fragments, P46 and P52 is what they're referred to, that date back to within a few decades of when they were originally written. The letters of Paul, for example, in uh, P46. Uh, P52 includes some of John's gospel. And uh, what this tells us is that very early on, uh, the New Testament scriptures were being copied and transmitted and widely distributed. 
And, and we have over 5,600 papyrus and other fragments in Greek of the New Testament that date back to the first few centuries. If you add to that early translations into languages such as Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic, uh, another 19,000 translations from very early in history, we have over 24,000 manuscripts of various shapes and sizes out of which we can reconstruct what the original copies of our New Testament scriptures would have been with almost exact verbal accuracy, 99 plus percent precise verbal accuracy. Now, some of you have probably heard, if you watch CNN around Easter, they always have something on this or one of the other cable channels about uh, how the Bible has changed over the years. Maybe you've heard that. And the Bible's always been translated because most of us don't read that style of Greek and Hebrew and some Aramaic. Some of us have been trained in that, but most of us don't, so we rely on translations. Uh, but, but what we can actually see through comparing of all these texts is the overwhelming majority of, of discrepancies are, are due to tribal, uh, scribal errors. It might be misspelling, it might be reversing word orders or skipping a line, and you can imagine handwritten copies in dark rooms with candlelight. It's not all that uncommon. Just think of how many text fails you have when you're trying to send a message to your friends, right? It, it's not all that different. There are some where there were deliberate changes, where, for example, they thought a verse was missing when they were going through the Gospels, and so they added a, another part of a verse that was actually from Matthew, but they put it into Mark or Luke. That happens not all that uncommonly. Uh, and so through a simple process of deduction, we can reconstruct what the original would have been by saying what makes sense as being the more complicated thing they may be made simple. Like when they describe Jesus as being really angry, they may soften that tone a little bit. And, and through just comparing and contrasting the evidence that's there, we can reconstruct with almost exact verbal accuracy what exactly the originals would have been. I tell you that to tell you this. The translations you read from are based on very, very, very reliable sources, unparalleled in the world of literature. And so you can rely on them as being faithful to what originally was written. Now here's the second thing. If this book was widely transmitted and, and uh, treated with such reverence, we'd expect others in antiquity to have known about it and talked about it. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Uh, here's one quote from a, a blog from Focus on the Family from a few years ago, uh, quoting Norman Geisler, who is a great, uh, study, or a, uh, a great professor, and he studied apologetics. He says this, it's also interesting that within the early centuries of the Christian church, so the first two, three hundred years, uh, a number of scholars quoted the New Testament. And amazingly, they quoted the New Testament so much that every single verse of the 27 books of what we call the New Testament is quoted by one of these scholars, with the exception of 11 verses. Now, I feel kind of bad for those 11 verses, and I want to know what the 11 are that didn't make the cut. But, um, but a lot of these would have been sermons or commentaries on the Scriptures, and so they're written by Christian authors, but, but the point would be to say they are widely well-known, uh, they are respected, and actually through some of their copies of the copies of the commentaries and sermons, that can also help us get back to what the original sources would have been. Another example of this would be uh, the Qumran uh, caves. Maybe you've heard of Qumran. It's a place in Israel near the Dead Sea, uh, and this is about the Old Testament more than the New Testament. Uh, for a while, people thought that our Old Testament from the Hebrew was, was also changed dramatically over history. 
Uh, fast forward to the 1940s, and a shepherd boy is out kind of exploring the caves with his sheep and uncovers these vast trove of treasures of these Old Testament manuscripts uh, that are called the Qumran, uh, the, the Qumran scrolls. And what they were able to do is, is, is study them and confirm some 2,000-year-old documents uh, that the copies we have of our Old Testament are almost also exactly, precisely accurate. And it's really stunning how God has protected and preserved them throughout history. So uh, our Bible is reliable because of its, uh, its uh, ability to be verified through the documents, uh, well known in the early years and attested by Christians and other scholars of that time. Uh, here's another interesting thing that helps prove the authority and the reliability of Scripture. It's internal consistency reveals a divine author. Now, I want to show you this here. Uh, it's a, a fantastic image uh, that tries to graphically depict the interconnectedness of Scripture, right? Now, don't try to figure out exactly what this means. Just kind of just let it wash over you a little bit. I saw it first a couple years ago, and it's been floating around on the internet for a while ever since. Uh, what somebody did is they took all of the direct quotations references and allusions in the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, within the New Testament to itself, within the Old Testament to itself, and it depicted it visually through these arcs, right? And um, what's interesting is if you go to uh, the, this website, if you want to just Google this phrase, interactive cross-reference visualization, right? Or you can screenshot this, or if you ask me later on, I'll send it to you. Um, you can actually uh, click on each and every one of those little arcs, and it'll show you the direct quotation, reference, or illusion that's attributed. There's some 63,000 of them uh, that tie together the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, and all of Scripture together. And the point of it would be to say this, the scriptures are written over thousands of years by dozens of different individuals, but it's always tied together by one being. That is God revealing himself to us. And the complexity of scripture as we know it would be impossible for any human being or any human community to try to create on their own. Just simply couldn't happen. And that's what this is intended to help illustrate. So uh, check it out, uh, interactive cross-reference visualization. The one thing I would say this, don't do it on your phone because it's way too complicated for your phone. It'll blow it up. So go home and find a computer or a bigger screen and then just explore it to your heart's content. It's really fascinating. Right, one last thing I'd want to point out on, on the connectedness and the inspiration, the divine authorship of Scripture. This is what Peter says who is one of Jesus' disciples and also an author of two New Testament books, First and Second Peter. He says this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That is to say, it's not just made up. Uh, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is, is, is what you're seeing and hearing and reading we didn't just make this up, but the Holy Spirit of God was present and active in the, in the communication, in the writing down, and in the transmission and preservation of it down to this day. Okay, one last uh, area that I want to explore as we kind of close for today. Um, not only is it a historically reliable book that's widely spread, read, and well-known, and not only does it have complexity that is irreducible and beyond human ability to recreate, but it also has an effect on those who read it. 
And those of you in the room or those of you at home, maybe you know what I'm talking about. When you encounter God's Word, it does something to us. Uh, for example, I just did a, a funeral for a friend uh, this past, I guess it was yesterday or Friday, whatever it was, Friday. And, uh, and it was someone who had lived a good long life. She was in her 80s when she passed away. Uh, but when I visited her in her home with her daughters and the grandchildren were gathering near her end, um, there were just scripture passages all around her. And as we got together to tell stories about Hattie, we talked about just how she oozed generosity and kindness and grace and how they thought it was amazing that she never kind of overreacted and got angry. And, and, and sometimes at funerals, you always tell the best stories and not the worst. Like, that's true. But, but what I've often seen is someone who has spent a long time with Jesus, someone who has spent a lifetime uh, devoted to his word, you can actually see a transformed life, uh, especially looking back over a long time. And you can see, wow, this has made a difference. This person imperfectly looks a whole lot like Jesus. Now, why is that? Take a look at this. Isaiah 55 says this, so shall my word, this is the words of God, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose which I purpose and, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. So God himself says when he speaks and when he reveals himself through scripture, he's got something that he wants to do in and through it. And he's not going to waste time or energy or words. He's going to accomplish the purpose for which he sends it. Or I like this one from Jeremiah 23, 29. Um, this would be a great confirmation verse, by the way, or life verse if you want to claim this one. Is not my word like fire declares a word and like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces? Maybe you've experienced this. Sometimes when you're reading scripture or pulling it up on your Bible app or you hear it through preaching or through the word of encouragement from a friend, sometimes you realize how much of a mess you are and how much you fall short of what God's best is for you and how you fail to do what you know you should do and, and the thing you know you shouldn't do, you just keep on doing it. You know what I'm talking about, right? God's word has this ability to just break us down and, and remind us of how imperfect we are. And it's for a purpose, not to make us feel miserable, not to ruin our day, but it's to remind us of who we are and who God is. It's what we would call the use of the law that convicts us of our sin, but it never leaves us broken. God's word always has an even better purpose. Take a look at this from Psalm 119. The psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Though you're, Through your precepts I get understanding, and therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Not only is God's word like a hammer that can crush us, but it's also like the most tender thing that can lift us up and fill us with hope. Because God comes not just through his, his word in law, but also in gospel to proclaim his love for us, his unconditional love that, that is freely given and gladly received, that changes us from the inside out as we come to receive it and build our life upon it. And, and we also learn that his, his word, it, it invites us into the best way to live. Right? There's, there's no better way to live than, than putting into practice the words and ways of Jesus. And so, so that's why we turn our attention to God's word and build our life upon it, like Jesus said, on that solid foundation as opposed to on the shifting sand. One more stop. 1 Peter 1, verses 22, or sorry, 23 to 25. Peter writes, You have been born again, not of the perishable seed, but the imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, right? He, he destroys us and then builds us up. He kills us and makes us alive through law and gospel. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of the grass. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Right? That's a quotation directly from Isaiah. Right? Remember I talked about how it's all linked and connected? And then he adds this, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Right? So the word of God continues to be proclaimed. It is good news that leads to eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, through, through what he has revealed of himself through his word, and how he then draws us to him. So as you reflect on that, we have two here in practice questions. I want you to think about if you're on your own or share with someone if you're close to someone, including those of you at home. Um, here's the two questions. What is your favorite verse or book of the Bible and why? All right, so that's question number one. Number two, what's one thing you can do to grow in your devotion to God's word? Take a few moments, reflect on that, chat about that with a friend, uh, and then we're going to sing another song and then do some Q&A.